We're going to now turn our attention to the Gospel of Mark. We've been working through the Gospel of Mark for a few months now, and we have come to Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Jesus has just been up on the Mount of Transfiguration with, uh, with a few of his disciples, and Moses and Elijah showed up, and now they're coming down the mountain uh, to a challenging scene. So, this is Mark 9, verses 14 to 29. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and experts in the law arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran at once and greeted him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? A member of the crowd said to him, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able to do so. He answered them, You unbelieving generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I endure you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Then Jesus said to him, if you are able, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, when Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. It shrieked, threw him into terrible convulsions, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, He's dead. But Jesus gently took his hand and raised him to his feet, and he stood up. Then, after he went into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we cast it out? He told them, This kind can only come out by prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Father, I want to acknowledge that, um, that this story is scary. When we recognize these, um, this terrible, violent thing that's happening to this boy and the presence of, a, of an evil spirit that's causing it, Lord, that's, that's intimidating, that's scary, um, or it, it's, it stretches our belief. 
And uh, Lord, we acknowledge that. We just acknowledge that. We come before you and ask you to show us about your word. Lord, we also ask that you would help us to see what you are trying to teach us through this word. Um, so Lord, have your way in the preaching of the word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So yeah, this is a wild scene. Um, this is a scary scene. It's the last exorcism in the Gospel of Mark. Up until this point, Jesus, almost everywhere he goes, uh, interacts with people who have a wicked, evil, unclean spirit in them, controlling them. And Jesus, anytime he encounters somebody in that situation, he deals with it quickly and miraculously. And that's the theme throughout scripture, actually. Um, demons can seem really terrifying, but even into the book of Revelation, you have, the, you know, what, what the movies make out to be this giant battle, Armageddon, right? This huge battle between good and evil. Read Revelation. It's not even a battle at all. It's over in a moment. Jesus speaks and it's done. That's a theme throughout scripture. Be but because this story is dramatic and scary and we say, oh, wow, there's things that I would give medical or scientific explanations to in a different way that Jesus recognizes as spirits. Because of that, we get a little bit distracted from what Jesus is trying to teach this crowd and us in the passage. We think the main problem in the passage is the condition of this boy. Jesus thinks the main problem in this passage is the lack of faith of all of the people there. He, he, gets a, he asks, what's going on here? Why are you guys arguing? The father explains, and Jesus says, unbelieving generation, how long? That's what Jesus recognizes as the problem. This is a passage about faith or the absence of faith. Faith uh, is like the thing we talk about so much, and it still is this slippery thing. It's a tricky thing to get our hands around. Yet, like, we think of faith maybe as believing certain ideas. You get evidence about something, and you say, I agree that that's the way things are. I agree that, you know, I hear evidence about God or about Jesus, and I, I agree intellectually that that's the way it is, that's certainly important. That's really important of faith. Faith that Jesus consistently seeks um, is more than that, more than just accurately assessing who he is. After all, one person in, or one character in this story who accurately assesses who Jesus is, is the demon. The demon knows who Jesus is. That's not the whole picture of faith. So I don't want to give you a neat and tidy definition of faith today. Instead, I want to look at this story and, and challenge you to see yourself in the different people that are in this story. We see four different ways to not have faith <laughs> in this story. Four different examples of, of absent faith. We see it in the crowds. We see it in the experts in the law. We see it in the Father, and we see it in the disciples. So it's like uh, reading a little magazine article. You can uh, take out the assessment and decide which one you are today. 
am I a crowd, an expert in the law, a, uh, the father, or the disciples? Here's what I mean. The crowds. Jesus comes down and there's a crowd. They're gathering around and they're arguing. What, who are these people? What are they doing? And, and later on, when more of a crowd is gathering, when you know it seems like Jesus is about to deal with this boy, more are gathering and Jesus avoids them. What's going on here? It, it seems this group of people is there for a show. They're there just for some distraction. There's something cool going. They're rubbernecking. They're slowing down on the highway. They, they want to see something exciting. And throughout the Gospel of Mark, with a couple of significant exceptions, Jesus avoids crowds. When crowds start to gather, he leaves. This is very challenging for church leaders in this culture where we think it's better the bigger the crowd we have. Jesus consistently avoids the crowd. He's, all, he, he, he's getting away from them. He does not automatically think a crowd is a good thing. The crowd is not a faith-rich environment. There are people looking for just a little distraction. They're not really intending to see something about Jesus and change their life. They're coming for a show, and then they're going to go back to their lives. And I, I, I'm not going to point fingers at you. I wonder how often I do this. We have access through the World Wide Web to the, the best preachers in the world, the best music in the world. We can, you know, we can, uh, we can show up to, here we are in Littleton, there's dozens of amazing churches all around us. You can show up and get a good show of all different kinds and go back to your life as if nothing has changed. I wonder, would your life deeply and fundamentally change if Jesus and his people were not part of it? Because if the answer is no, you might be in the crowds category. And Jesus is not interested in entertaining you. He's avoiding that, actually. Listen, we're talking about Jesus here. I mean, the, he is the, the expression of God's love and compassion. He is God's love in flesh form. And he is not motivated to release the, this boy from this demon until there's a crowd coming. Like, what? He, he, that's when he hurries up and gets it done. Nothing to see here. Move along. That's essentially what happens. All right, that's the crowds. Okay, what do we see about the experts in the law and their faith? This second group is apparently there just to expose error. They want to expose, they see heresy, they see something they disagree with, and they're there to humiliate it. Did you know that in this culture in the first century, these experts in the law were supposed to be people who actually set people free from demons? They had their own deliverance ministry. There's no evidence that they're doing anything for the boy. They're just there to point fingers at how the disciples can't do it. See, your leader's no good, you're no good, this movement's no good. People, you know, you get, none of you should believe this hogwash. That's what they're there 
to do. They are ready with their outrage. I hope you can see an easy connection to our life today, our culture today. Of course, it's gone totally out of control online because we're a little bit more, um, you know, anonymous online or a little bit more uh, courageous to say horrible things to each other online. It's pretty common online. And, and it's not just, you know, whatever group you're thinking of that does it in the bad way, it's not just them. It's not just them. Friends, I, well, I won't say names here because I want to respect uh, uh, some others, but I, I'm, you know, I'm thinking several years ago, a, a really prominent American pastor wrote a book and published it, and his, his book was challenging orthodoxy. I, I think it was wrong. I'm like, he was wrong in what he wrote. But to see the way other prominent pastors, people I really, really respect, just responded online, not with thoughtful critique or let's have a conversation about this, but with, you know, goodbye, like you're, you're out, you're, you're essentially you're dead to us. Like it was the same thing. The experts in the law came and exposed the error rather than having a conversation. It, it doesn't just happen online. It, friends, it's important to know boundaries, right? To know, you know, to kind of have your sense of this is what I think is good, this is what I think is wrong. That's, that's important. Work on that. But if you are so much clearer about what you're against than what you're for, you may be more like the experts in the law. If you focus on what you're against, they're not there. These guys aren't there to learn anything about Jesus or to consider new ideas. They're there to expose. They're, they're more focused on being against Jesus than for this in boy experiencing incredibly suf incredible suffering. That's, that's tragic to me. And it looks like, well, it looks like me plenty of my life. And I wonder if it looks like some of you. They, they may have started with a passion for the truth, but that passion turned to arrogance, turned to believing that they were the, the sole protectors of the truth and that it was their job to expose everyone who was wrong. Okay, that's group two. Third, third group, just one guy, this dad, this desperate dad, all right? All we see is a man who is desperate to see his son set free from a lifelong situation. The time he was, the word is for his infant there when he says when he was, when he was very young. And apparently word has reached this dad that there's a miracle worker in town who can just with a word, no song and dance, just with a word, cast out demons. And so, and, and even some of this, this miracle worker's followers have been able to cast out demons. We saw that a few chapters ago in Mark chapter 6. And so he comes full of hope. But hope without faith is such a fragile thing. It's so, it, can, it can blow over with the slightest breeze. The smallest disappointments can disrupt it. That's when we actually meet the Father. By the time he's explaining to Jesus what's going on, he's the spokesperson for the crowd, apparently. He's like calculated with the way he explains it. Yeah. 
this is what's happened. I brought my son. They couldn't do it. He may have come with hope, but his skeptical, protective force field has been reactivated. And if you have walked with someone through chronic illness, through terminal illness, through mental illness, through relational brokenness, through addiction, when you get that little moment where you think things might be better now and you put a lot of hope into it, it is very when it doesn't go the way you hoped it would right? You actually find yourself less hopeful than you ever were before. I, I want you to notice something. We're in Mark 9, and there's, this is a parent who has come to Jesus seeking help for their child who has a demon. And that happened just a couple chapters ago in Mark 7. You can go back and read it. It's a very different type of parent who came to Jesus looking for help with her child who had a demon. This is a Jewish man in our story today. That, that was a Gentile woman, a foreigner, not a Jew. And her conversation with Jesus, it was about Jesus' plan, maybe his desire that might or might not include her child, but she did not doubt that either his plan or his desire could reach all the way to her child. It impressed Jesus. On the other hand, this Jewish man immediately skips past Jesus' desire and has just made a decision about his ability. Uh, well, if you can, go ahead and try. You know, won't bother me either way. That's the tone he seems to have, and that's what Jesus responds to. In fact, since I think a lot of you can relate to this, you've been in this situation. Look at the way Jesus sticks with him. Like Jesus invites this guy to come out of that protective shell. It, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. That's what Jesus, that's the big lesson Jesus is teaching. The son is not Jesus' focus of attention in this story. It's his dad. What his dad is going through. Parents, the Bible is utterly unambiguous about the critical role that you play in your kids' lives. Unambiguous. You have a, you have an, an authority in prayer for your kids. Do not take it lightly. Bring them before him and see what happens. So when Jesus hits the nerve for this guy, that's the first time that he shows any emotion. A, a New Testament scholar says that he's able to calmly explain his kid's situation, but when Jesus touches the nerve of his faith, he cries out. Please. I believe. Help my unbelief. What does that mean? It's one, of the, it's one of the great prayers of the Bible. Anyone else pray that prayer regularly? <laughs> yeah, I'm there. It's so honest and desperate and raw. It's a confession. Even the belief that I have is insufficient. But if you see the Jesus that this man's, man sees, you'll know. Jesus is sufficient. 
Gosh, this quote from a New Testament scholar, James Edwards, just hit me so heavy this week. I, I want to read it to you. Um, he says, true faith is always aware how small and inadequate it is. The father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has. When he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. The risk of faith is more costly to the father than bringing his son to Jesus. For he can talk about his son, but he must cry out for faith. True faith takes no confidence in itself, nor does it judge Jesus by the weakness of its followers. It looks to the more powerful one who stands in the place of God, whose authoritative word restores life from chaos. True faith is unconditional openness to God, a decision in the face of all to the contrary, that Jesus is able. That's the faith we're being invited into today. So even if you realize you're more like the crowds or the experts in the law, I want to invite you to stand with the Father today. I believe. Help my unbelief. He had to get there after dealing with Jesus' followers who um, let him down. They tried to heal his son and they couldn't. But they're part of this story too. And that's who I want to look at quickly at the end. The disciples had been through a journey throughout the Gospel of Mark. Uh, let me just remind you of a couple scenes. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus goes up on a mountain and brings the 12 disciples to him. And he says, I'm, I'm calling you to be with me so I can give you my authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick. That's what he does in chapter 3. In chapter 6, he literally sends them out to do it. And it works. They go out and they're able to cast out demons. They're able to heal the sick. They're able to proclaim the good news about who he is, even though they don't even understand the whole thing. They're able to. Do. So what has changed here? Is this demon stronger than the other ones that they faced? Is it harder? Had they met their match? Let me ask this another way. When, when Jesus says, this kind can only come out by prayer, is he saying that some don't require prayer? Like, that doesn't sound right. What's, okay, well, what's the deal here? Yet again, Jesus is on a mountain. When he comes down, there's hubbub. When the, the father comes, he begs for help. And with a word from Jesus, eventually the boy is set free. And Jesus says, only by prayer. This kind can only come out by prayer. So Jesus had given these 12, well, it, it was nine because he had three on the mountain with him, all right, details. But he had given them all authority and they had used it. But in this scene, they're part of the crowd that he says, unbelieving generation. If you've been a, someone who has walked with Jesus and followed Jesus for a long time, I'm sure you have had many moments in your faith where you've done it on your own. Where you've said, I've been there, done that. I know how this goes. I know the things to say. I know how to manage this situation. You, you do it on your own. 
Friends, I think that that's what's happening with the disciples here. When Jesus says this kind can only come out by prayer, he's not saying to the exclusion of other kinds. He's saying, don't forget, this is my authority. You are a conduit. It comes from me and goes out. It doesn't come from you. Don't forget to lean on my authority. I do this all the time. I'm afraid to tell you just how often I act like these disciples to, for church. I know the routine. I put together sermons and sometimes on Sunday morning during confession, I'm like, oh, Lord, um, can you help with this? Autopilot is a very real risk, believers. When we drift into independence from the Lord, acting like we can be agents of freedom with, without his constant supernatural help as the only one who provides real freedom, we will find ourselves in the same position as these disciples. How did Paul say it in Galatians? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So don't do it without him. Only by prayer. This is a huge deal. It affects the way we think of the Christian life altogether. Friends, belief is not a one and done situation. That's a lie that, our, that the, the church has believed, to be honest. We treat belief like, well, if we could convince somebody to pray this like little routine prayer, they're good for the rest of their life. We treat, there's, there's nothing in the Bible that describes it like that. Belief is entrusting your whole being to him. Belief begins with the desperate cry of the, this father in this story. All I know is that I don't have what it takes. That's all I really know at this point. That's where belief starts. But it grows when we respond like these disciples. Okay, Jesus, we're going to stick with you. What went wrong there? Like, how, how gracious of him. That's the opportunity. Believers, you have that opportunity too. Follow him back in private. Help me understand what went wrong there. Talk me through that. So, here's your magazine, you know, test to find out your pet personality type. Are you, are you the bored crowd? The critical expert? The desperate father? Or the self-reliant disciples? No matter where you find yourself today, you are not without hope. When Jesus prays or shouts out, how much longer must I endure you? I hear that as like, I can't put up with this anymore. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, how long until I can take all of this unbelief into myself and offer them? How much longer? Friends, he has offered help for our unbelief in his very flesh and blood. It was unbelief even of these disciples that meant he was alone on the cross taking all of the unbelief of the whole world, all of the rejection, all of the, the critical nature, all of the self-reliance, all of the desperate situations where people are bound by demons of all kinds. He was taking it all and breaking all of its power. 
on the cross. And that's what we celebrate at the table. That's why we feast. So, I would invite you, church, to engage and celebrate this meal with me by praying through this great prayer from our brothers and sisters in Kenya. You can follow along on screen. And Bethany will read the, uh, the people part. Thanks, Bethany. Church, is the Father with us? He is. Is Christ among us? He is. Is the Spirit here? He is. This is our God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are his people. We are redeemed. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Holy, 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 Lord God, power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Church, on the same night that he was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks. And he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. His body was broken for us. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and gave thanks. And he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. We are brothers and sisters through his blood. We have died together. We will rise together. We will live together. Amen. Amen. Jesus, Jesus is, is Lord, Lord. And this is the feast of victory. The lamb who was slain has begun his reign. Christ is alive forever. We are because he is. We're one body. We share one bread. So draw near with faith. Christ is the host, and we are his guests. And so, church, I would invite you to come and receive the bread. It's gluten-free for those who uh, need to know that. And you can either dip it in the cup, I, I'll have wine in my hand, or just uh, ask and we can hand you a, a little cup of grape juice as well. Let's worship as we come. 